When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. to episode two of the socially distant sports bar no live sport of course because of the coronavirus so mike ellis and i have set up a bar a socially distant sports bar we meet up and talk about old sport youtube clips sports documentaries sports books anything that is helping us fill the gaping void uh, mike how's your week been yeah good stuff uh staying in the house mostly um <laughs> yeah. on uh, brand it's good yeah it's good how about you it, 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 very similar as yeah, it goes. It's great. <laughs> Alice, yourself? every day is the same. <laughs> it really is. I mean, when my when my kids were up to about three months old, you realise that children only do babies at that age only do about four things: they cry, they poo, they eat, and they sleep, and that is basically it. And I don't think like I'm Nirvana. I, That's like Nirvana. Yeah, I don't think I'm doing much more than that. Actually, every day is exactly the same, yeah. based around defecating, eating, and crying. It's a nice way of living your life. I'm listening to uh, my my golf pro uh, gave me a book on Buddhism, and essentially that you becoming a Buddhist now. Yeah, That's what you're doing. Yeah, you're, th- let, you're, letting, you're letting go of the self. I always I always thought I suited Buddhism actually of, of all of the. I uh, guess he was a Buddhist. Yeah, just let it go. <laughs> Kevin Eldon, the comic actor, is a Buddhist. Yeah, there's a few. There's a, there's a few around, isn't there? <laughs> 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 uh, last week we kind of described the decor of the bar. Mm. Um, th- this week I want a few suggestions of beers on tap. I know the guys at Beer Fifty Two are providing a uh, kind of ever-changing stock of cans and bottles, but I wanted two on tap. Um, so on our wonderful Twitter brand, which someone described this week as being a password reset that Amazon would send you. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. It's like when you when you when your computer offers you a password and says this is a strong one. This is a really good password. No one will ever crack it. Our Twitter handle handle was very, very strong originally. It was was almost uncrackable (laughs) and therefore almost unmarketable. So it has since been changed 
Uh, it is now what I consider unfathomable at Distant Pod. Lovely. Listen. I don't think anyone's going to find that. I don't think it's helpful for the careers of any of us. But is know. it T S D S B one? Yeah. Yeah. No capital letters in there, but no, you. The the problem I <laughs> used to have was oh, I used to have the the. This well, could be a really I mean, long I, podcast, I guys. To, I have to search my <laughs> app it. messages because you were tweeting me all of the time. Because uh, Steph yeah. is in charge of the, of the of the Twitter feed. Let's not beat around Don't, the bush. Oh, so I get the blame. Yeah. Uh, I used to have to search my app messages to find it because I could never <laughs> I could never remember. I could never work it out. It was the T's, the fact that he, the, the initial, the V at the beginning was, was throwing me. I think the V is very important, the yeah. d- definitive article. Yeah. Well, no? it's, well, but it's not, though, because there's a one at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we asked for some suggestions for beers. Kinology Fitness. See, who's going to find them? How, how are people going to know hey, what they do? I will not have That's a bad word for them. They're good people. <laughs> Let's go back to the 90s, Red Stripe and Grolsch. They want on tap. Just reminds me of Liam Gallagher, uh, Red Stripe. It does. That. That's very. Yeah. yeah, that is very, very Britpop. West uh, Baz Price says, "Buddy Bach and Doombar." Oh yeah, I could. I'm all right with Doombar. Do Doombar is the Bay Rugby Club uh, draft beer? Is it? I'm all right I like Doombar uh, yeah. personally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of a fan of that. Uh, Gareth Lewis is going very traditional bar of Carding and Strongbow. Oh. Keep it simple. Mark Perriman, similar. Stella Stoford Press. I did a. a you can't call it a corporate. It was a fr- friend of mine, Hugh, was was coaching a, a rugby club called Mighty, and I did their right. their end of season. Uh, I did their end of season dinner a few years back, and when I got there, a lovely club, really friendly lads. We, we had a good night up there. Um, tiny little clubhouse. The only thing that they passed in their, in their AGM was they wanted Stoford Press on tap, which everyone got behind, right? And that, so you, right. You go in the clubhouse. There was just Stoford Press on tap, <laughs> but, but they would. They were serving it in, in gallon in eight pint watering cans, right? <laughs> it was the it got ugly so quickly it was ridiculous. They, they, so they were drinking eight pint watering cans full of Stoford Press while I got there. <laughs> the stand up comic in me, I mean, I am terrified at this the the playability of this gig already. So mm. how I mean, bearing in mind they were drinking cider out of watering cans. How did there was there was a hog roast? Be there honest, was a full, how did there was the gig a full go? pig being? Do you know what it went? It went better than I expected, but I expected to go really, really badly. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and it just went. They just didn't pay any attention. Oh, I they didn't heckle that. me. They had a bun fight. That all right, that's acceptable. Yeah. They started throwing like uh, bread rolls dipped in cider at each other. Um, one lad got his got his dick out and ran across the clubhouse. Um, <laughs> See, so yeah, it was fine. It was absolutely fine. Pay, and it was, you know. See, I'd I'd, I'd say that was a bad gig, but clearly, Mike. <laughs> I just joined in. It was fantastic. It was. Uh, I got. I mean, I've got in, in my in my armory. I can jump in with that, Al, as you well know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like if you if you were how we met. Lads, if you if you were drinking, <laughs> if you were with fifty boys drinking gallons of uh, Stoker Press out of watering cans, you'd feel like you didn't belong there, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. Whereas I immediately sort of decided I wasn't going to drive home that night. <laughs> All right, so Stouffer Presses are possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that on the tentative list. Give that a tick for me. So we'll try and sort out a Twitter poll uh, over the next few days. Put some yeah. beers up there, stick them head to head, and you can vote at Distant Pod. <laughs> Thank you.
So first round of clips for this week. Uh, Ellis, you're up first this week. What you got for yes, us? Yes, uh, this is a clip. I don't actually think I remember it. I think I remember seeing it, a, seeing it a lot as a kid because it was one of those things that was so noteworthy. It seemed to be shown on Grandstand every 10 days or so. It's Paul Thorburn's monster kick against Scotland at the Arms Park in 1986. And I'll tell you, you won't believe this, but that is the Welsh 10 metres line and Paul Thorburn is going to attempt a goal. It's miles to those goalposts. Thorburn then, woof, what a belt he's given it. That is amazing! So it's a penalty from 65 metres or so. Hmm. And, you know, even now, 34 years on, it's impressive. Um, Presumably, I mean, I'm deferring to your greater knowledge on this. I'm assuming the the ball was much heavier in those days. Um, It wasn't so much the ball was heavier in those days. Um, The the biggest difference would have been then, well, two things would have been the quality of the pitch wouldn't have been as good. No tea. It was, and there was no kicking. There was no kicking to yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, I was, I was there for that. My friend Nick and I were in the East Terrace, which is behind where Thorburn was, and that in that season, uh, some players were kicking to touch from the floor to keep it below the wind. That was like a big, it's like a fad in a few games that year. So when he got the penalty, uh, I, I was stood sort of forty or fifty yards behind him, right, and he put the yeah. ball on. He sort of made it, made a castle and put the ball down. I looked at Nicky and said, "Is he? He's not kicking a goal." He said, he said, I think he is. I said, Christ. And we watched it. So we're watching this kick. Big lolloping run. And when he kicked it, the West enclosure, with first ones that sort of see that had gone over the crossbar, and they, they go yeah. up. And then it was like a simultaneous Mexican wave from, from the West enclosure right round to the East Terrace, where the whole place went up. I mean, I've never seen a reaction to a, to a penalty kick like it. Now, the National Stadium, as it was known by then... Because obviously Cardiff mm. Arms Park was next door where, where Cardiff Rugby Club played, although yeah, still yeah. colloquially known as the Arms Park. But the National Stadium, other than the Vetch, is my favourite sporting arena ever. Mm. I love that place. So I, I went there first in May 88. My, my father, my uncle took me with, with my cousin to the 1988 Schweppes Cup final, uh, Lethley versus Neath. Great. So I've got, I've got very, very fond memories of, of that ground. What I love about this clip is um, just the aesthetics of the of the National Stadium because it's just I, I just think that is what is a sporting arena, what a ground should look like. Bill McLaren's commentary is fantastic. He is absolutely oh, yes. stunned a that, yeah. that Thorburn's trying it and b that he succeeds. So Thorburn um, McLaren reacts like it's. The Barbarians try against New Zealand in 1973. I mean, it's it's a place yeah. kick. It's a penalty. And McLaren, Bill McLaren, who's watched rugby probably every day of his life, just cannot believe what he's seeing. So obviously that's very evocative, and I really love that. But also, I've I've watched a lot of 70s rugby with my father because Dad's this. You know, he was clearly obsessed. And he, he turned 18 in 1970. So the golden era, he was at all of those games, in particular the ones um, in Cardiff. And I've watched a lot of 70s rugby with Dad. The standard of the place kicking is absolutely terrible in the night. <laughs> oh, if, you, if, you're a, if you're a 60% kicker in those days, when you watch like, um, what was his name, the flanker, John... John Taylor. Oh, John, John Taylor, yeah. You watch John Taylor kicking, 
He looks like he's had a stroke. Well, he's just like, <laughs> not just that. He looks like he's never kicked before. And someone's just, someone's just asked him to do it, and he's gone. Proper yeah, kicking right. out. Yeah, I'll have a, I'll have a, I'll go have a swing of this. I'll have a swing of that. Dad was um, that, that that great try you were talking about. The Barbers. Uh, Edwards scores. Yeah. yeah, Phil Bennett's conversion. Terrible of that. It's one of the worst. If, if anyone ever watches beyond that, much, it's one of the. It, it almost undermines the try. For and me. also, well, it's so if you watch the clips of that try, the the Barbers try seventy three against New Zealand, the Gareth Edwards try. It always cuts out the video on YouTube or the the, the yeah. footage they show on the telly. Always cuts out before Bennett's conversion attempt because it's so bad. It, he barely gets the ball off the ground. The best thing about McLaren, right? And I love Bill McLaren, is he's like this hike, this borders lovely, well well spoken Scottish schoolmaster from the, the the borders region. But he was stuck in that 1940s and 50s mentality about everything, about heights, weights, yeah, things, yeah. You know? So you know. Uh, you know, he's a huge man there at 5 feet 11 inches and almost yeah. 10 stones Scott you know, Hastings there a giant of a man <laughs> 5 feet almost 10 six feet, almost 6 feet 1 in his stocking feet you're like what? <laughs> <laughs> almost, imagine trying to stop 12 stones on the hoof <laughs> God, things have moved on Bill not everyone's got a 32 inch chest plane for Wales <laughs> so I you know I love Bill McLaren as well but he he is completely swept up um, in in the emotion of the whole thing. He just can't believe yeah. what he's seeing now. Now Paul Thorburn was a, a bit of a hero of mine, and when you look at the standard of place kicking in the seventies, a it just seems like an afterthought. The idea that you so you, mm. you try and score a try, of course you do. The idea that you could get an extra, an additional two points for the conversion, nobody seems that bothered. And it was more important, you think, in those days, it was a four-point try. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a conversion was actually worth more than it's worth now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but no one cared about it. But no one seems to care. So even the place kickers who were regarded as, as good in their time, it's very, very patchy. Now, that the, the kind of... Um, you know, like, like Neil Jenkins notoriously just used to practice for hours and hours and hours yeah. From, yeah. from all parts of the pitch... And obviously Amazing. was in, immensely reliable as a, as a place kicker. The other thing with Bill McLaren is I bought my father um, Bill McLaren's greatest ever rugby 15 for Christmas and he chooses Rob Andrew at outside half. Come on, oh, Bill. Have a word, Bill. Come, Come on, Bill. Come on, Bill. And it's completely sullied my memory of Bill McLaren. But anyway, but by the time I started watching rugby in the in sort of late 80s, Paul Thorburn was was a very. It's also when he stopped. Yes, yeah. I, I had about a six month very intense period. Yeah. But Thor, Thorburn by then was was very reliable, and he it was him and from memory Grant Fox for New Zealand and Michael Liner mm. um, for Australia. Grant Fox in particular and Rob Andrew in fairness in particular uh, for England. But Thorburn, it wasn't just that he was accurate; he would kick from distance from these incredible distances. In a way, I'm assuming is probably more. It's it's the kind of thing you see more often nowadays. But certainly, that 65 meter kick that he tries from his own half it, in 1986. I, I think they measured it 72 meters out. I think it was. Well, well, the, well McLaren, McLaren says 65 on the commentary. I think. Yeah. But if it's he also says it's absolutely miles. Which, <laughs> yeah. A pointless description. But I'm because nowadays, 
He also said he was the biggest man he'd ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> In the late 80s, when uh, they started playing American football at Wembley the first time round, I went to the first game in 86, was the, the pre-season, was the Cowboys and the Bears. But a few years after that, the LA Rams came over. Yeah. It was just after that kick, and he, he was it was the big news, and they brought Forbin on as a kicker. So he, he kicked off at Wembley for the LA Rams, and he came on with the, with the, um, the helmet, the pads on. They had his name wrong. You, you called him Thornburn earlier. I'm not sure that'll make the, if that'll make the edit. Sorry, that a couple I, of tricks. I, I, I forgive well you. But it said Thornburn on his jersey. That's why I laughed. Yeah, it yeah. said Thornburn on, on his jersey. They got the name wrong. And they bigged him up by this, this, this Welsh rugby kicker, and he was going to, you know, the longest kick ever recorded and all this sort of stuff. He kicked the ball. He did a kickoff, which looked like Phil Bennett's conversion after the 73. Right. <laughs> it was just an absolute stinker. Do you remember it, Steph? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And the, it was on Channel 4. And the commentators sort of, these two, I can't remember, the two American commentators basically laughed and then he jogged <laughs> off the pitch and he was, he was never seen again. So I'm assuming it's because the ball was different. Well, it's a rock-hard, smaller, pointier ball with off a kicking team. And obviously, because it's 1986, he hasn't bothered to he practice. Also, he would have lived in Neath. He wouldn't have been able to get older one, probably. Never seen him before. Right, Mike. What's your what's your choice for round one this week? Right, uh, because it's this podcast, mate. It's supposed to be a joyous thing. This is a clip that yes. just makes me uh, smile. This is Terry Wogan with, at the time, the longest televised putt. There's a good one. There's a good putt right there. So he yep. was yes, a, not not, yes. not not celebrity putt, the longest no, no. televised the golf longest. putt in the world and by that, anybody. And that's real Terry Wogan, who I know. Terry Wogan, real Telly, real Terry Wogan, Terry Wogan, real putt, real Terry Wogan in real plaid trousers with a real massive grin on his face, sinking about an eighty-yard putt wow. on like a three-tier green. It's just fabulous. I mean, I used to love watching. Um, Golf in the seventies and eighties, and around with Alice, and there was a lot, there seemed to be a lot of pro celebrity stuff on all the time. Terry Wogan and Tarbuck and Bruce Forsyth and these people. You watch that putt. I just love Terry Wogan's face because he lines it up and he just thinks he must have he must have taken three or four clubs too short to get that far from the pin. I mean that's yeah. a, that's a really really long green, and he's right at the start of it, and the the pin's right at the back of it, and he sinks it, and the whole place goes up, and his his look, I mean. I, I admit to have a soft spot for Terry Wogan anyway, but his <laughs> utter joy on his face. I just wanted to run. If I'd, been, if I'd have been there, I'd have run on and just hugged him. I was so pleased for him. Was he a good golfer? I think he was decent. I, th- I think they were all... I miss... I mean, I, I remember trying to play golf. I'm asking around if we wanted to play golf on the sort of stand-up comedy scene, and nobody plays. I, I think Clint, a friend of ours that we know, Clint... John Robbins plays, and Alex Horn play. Oh, I need to know this because I, I need to stop. I want to bring it back. I want to bring it back into public consciousness. Rob, r- we'll bring it back to like, like a Forsyth kind of level. John I'd Robbins and Alex Horn. Oh, I'd love that. John Robbins and Alex Horn have a golf channel called Bad Golf where they go oh, and well, play golf at places like the Belfry. Is he, <laughs> is he any good, badly. though? I think Robbins has a handicap of 18. He's okay. So, you know, he, oh, he can. He, that's I'm, decent. He can play. That's decent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about play. Alex. Yeah, I just uh, having- I just love that. I mean, I started playing golf when I was, when I was 11, and then I, I really wasn't cut out for it, temperament-wise, at that age. 
I used to, I used to, you surprised me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I used to break clubs and lose my temper a bit. And um, yeah, so I didn't play for years and years. I, I stopped playing sort of 15, 16. And like I said, I mentioned last week, I started having these lessons of a, of a beautiful man called John Hastings, who's a, a golf professional. Who's, you talk about anecdotalist, Al. He's got some of the best anecdotes of all time. Cause he, he was on the, he caddied on the US tour in the 80s. Oh, before wow. Craig, he, he was Craig Stadler's caddy for a couple of years. <clears throat> But um, I went to go and see him, and my first lesson there, he just he's, he's the most calm man ever. I got there, he was meditating in, in, the, in the driving range. And then he said, this lovely handshake, and we're having a chat. And then I said, should we hit some balls? He went, we're not going to hit any balls. We're going to let the ball get in the way of our swing. Oh. Like, oh. <laughs> so after about three weeks of like weekly lessons, my, my entire temperament changed in the house. And my wife said to me, you're so calm these days. I said, it's John Hastings, love. I said, it's, it, she said, she said, I don't care if you never play golf ever again. You're having golf lessons every week off John Hastings. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Just such a nice man. I want to see Ronnie Corbett playing a foursome with Jimmy Tarbuck, Bruce Forsyth, and Douglas Bader, for instance. Well, well, Ronnie Corbett, when he was doing his, when he was doing his, um, you know, his anecdotes on the two Ronnies, you know, from the from the producer's chair, you know, from mm. the chair. Yeah. He had a deal with Lyland Scott, the, the sort of who make you know sort of Pringles style yeah. jumpers, who were a very very big um, brand on the football casual football hooligan scene. So I think the two Ronnies was on a Friday night. So the night before, you know, Portsmouth. Imagine, imagine, getting, imagine getting cut by Ronnie Corbett. Well, I mean, I mean. <laughs> You know, Portsmouth are about to play Millwall in some sort of an hooligan FA Cup final. And on Friday night, they're all watching the two Ronnies to see what yeah. Ronnie Corbett was wearing. What you to me? Oh, oh man. <laughs> Ronnie Barker strolls into set in Burberry. Yeah, a yeah, scooter just, scarf, just, Stone just, Island jacket. Just, just kicks off. <laughs> what a sketch. Uh, my first clip for this week is of a boxer who I'm fascinated by. He's a guy called James Scott. The man you just heard is James Scott, and this is his home, Rawway State Prison, the maximum security prison in Woodbridge, New Jersey. So this guy's promoter goes to see HBO. He is an undefeated light heavyweight fighter at the time. He goes to see HBO. He hasn't fought for a couple of years, so he's trying to sell them the idea if they can put up the money, he's arranged that this guy can fight the number one light heavyweight contender in the world. All fine. They like the idea of it. Mm. The other guy has just fought for the world title. He's failed. So this is kind of a comeback fight. They're like, okay, give us a bit of backstory about James. What do you know about him? He's, like, he's, he's undefeated. He's come through. He fights out of New Jersey now. There's only one little thing that you have to factor in. He can only fight in one venue. And then, well, you know, we'll decide on where the venue is. Interest is peaked. None. Yeah, the, the interest levels have gone up in the room. Is it Madison Square Garden? Is it Madison Square Garden? <laughs> it's not the garden. It's Rawhay State Prison in New Jersey. Lovely. This is perfect. Because he's been sentenced to, and I like this, 30 to 40 years. Well, that's proper. Which... which it's proper, but also that's, I'd... That's not... That's not I'd like to know which it was. Yeah. <laughs> if I'd been sentenced to that... Because there's a big I, deficit. I don't there. want there to be a grey area in my sentence. Exactly. Grey area Tell of, me 37. I think what they mean over there, years. mate, I'll just step in there, if I may. Uh, 
with my limited, <laughs> my limited knowledge of the, of the legal system in this country, that 30 to 40, <laughs> I would imagine, means 30 minimum, 40 maximum. So without parole, 40, with parole, 30. Yeah. Whereas we tend, if I'm marking we, off the days on the wall, though, I just want to well, know. Well, just be a good boy and it's going to be 30. Okay. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you kill he's, someone he's else, He's a very good boy. He turns out to be a very good boy inside. Does he? And he sets up a box. Well, he sets up a, a whole boxing regime there. He's backed by the, the prison warden. And HBO go, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll televise a professional boxing bout inside what a prison. What was he done for? I mean, that must have been murder. Armed Rob- robbery. Armed robbery. Okay. Yeah, so I say he's a good boy inside. He obviously wasn't a good boy outside. It's not, that's, it's not, that's a I mean, he's not going to become uh, the, I the, nation, the, the nation's sweetheart. You know what I mean? <laughs> what? It's not Morgan Freeman. Who's coming over, love? James is going to babysit for us. Wait, <laughs> Mr. Scott. Nice fellow, you know, James. Ah, oh, James, James. Lovely lad. Um, the armed robber. Oh, <laughs> get him over. He sounds... Uh, he's definitely all right now, though, yeah? All, all the guys at HBO I'll stay have to. I'll stay. We'll get a takeaway. We'll get a takeaway. I'm assuming. <laughs> I'm assuming if he's done thirty to forty, if he's been sentenced to thirty to forty years, mm. possibly not yes. a first offence. I'm, I'm guessing there may have been previous in the okay. background there oh, somewhere. A bit of previous. Okay, right. we're not the jury. Okay, okay? we're just boxing fans here, in this. Anecdote. To be fair, we're not here to decide the the morality of it. Yeah, and neither at the time were the WBA because they he. He goes on to win this fight, Super. right? And then the good people at NBC decide that they have no moral problem with filming a fight within a prison. I mean, this is uh, NBC, if it, if it, ABC. If it makes money, there's going to be no US TV station with a problem about it anyway. What year was this, Steph? Because I looked at it and it just looked like that green, that grainy camera footage made it look like the 1980s, but I couldn't work out when. It's late 70s. Uh, and Sugar Ray Leonard is one of the pundits who they bring into the prison. <laughs> can I, Which ju- is can again, I just check, Steph? Is he out now? Uh, he's he's, he's no, no longer with us. Okay, so we can say we like it about him, that's fine. Absolutely, crack on. No. It's perfectly it's fair game. This reminds me, by the way, of a, of a Burt Reynolds film called The Longest Yard, of course, which became... Yes. Uh, the Me Machine over here, and then it got remade as with Vinnie Jones and various others, but I mean... I just love the idea of a... Of a, of a, of a Match in prison? Can he? Well, he he has his the rest of his career takes place in prison as 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 it would because he's got thirty to forty years mm. and however long your career is, even Bernard Hopkins would struggle to to have so continued what, what, on this, for the thirty to forty. So years. his prize money would have gone where? I think it went to the state penitentiary to go into the boxing program. So suddenly they've got a new telly in the uh, in the yeah. <laughs> prison common the, room. The, the warden's rocking up in a Bugatti Veyron, and you got. A, <laughs> And there's a new snooker table in the common room. <laughs> so it was very easy to make matches. Um, how uh, how good a boxer was he? Did he defend his title? Well, he 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 beats this guy who is the number one contender. Beats three or four more guys and gets himself to number one contender status. At which point people start to notice, sort of on a more global scale, that this guy is fighting inside, mm. and the WBA get twitchy feet and they decide to take him out of their rankings because they decide at this point that it is morally not acceptable that a world title fight will probably take place in a prison. So they cut him out, and that is 
near enough the end of his boxing story. Can you story. imagine the social media storm if that happened now? I wouldn't rule it out, though, Al. I, I wouldn't say that would never happen in the States with a big enough You don't players. think? No, no way. Not a, not a chance. I think if, if there was enough money thrown at that and enough people could make money off it, that that could happen. I can certainly, if, for argument's sake, if, if Floyd Mayweather got done for armed robbery and he wanted to box in mm. prison, I can, I can imagine that. I mean, I don't know why Floyd this Mayweather is a great would, would need any more money. <laughs> As hypothetical threads go, if Floyd Mayweather got done for armed robbery... But, yeah... <laughs> You know, if Deontay oh, no. Wilder or or any of the, the, the arson, the, what's he done? I mean, the biggest. <laughs> yeah, well, what are we accusing him Kid, of, Al? While we're here, arson, kidnap. I mean, the, but the biggest draws in boxing. <laughs> if any of them got, I can maybe imagine. I don't know. I just, I, I just. Think think, it but I'm I astonished that it it happened at all. I'd never heard of him actually. So when I watched this clip, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. <laughs> This is a paid advert from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now, we all carry around lots of different sort of stress moments, whether it's like big or small. It could be as huge as, how am I going to pay the mortgage this month? Or, you know, I'm I'm ill, but I don't really want to talk to anybody about that because I don't want to make them feel stressed about it as well. Or, you know, it could be just something as small as, how am I going to get to school pickup in time? I've got a meeting, how do I change that, how do I move that, I forgot to cancel that. And lots of the time we keep it bottled up, and whether it's big or small, it can really start to affect us negatively. And therapy is kind of a safe space to get those things off your chest. So whether it's like coming up with plans to, to organise your life a little bit better, or whether it's just having someone to talk to about those things you don't want to stress out your mates or your family with. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable and entirely online. You will be matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and you can switch therapists at any time. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash distant. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash distant. So, documentary-wise this week, Ellis's Choice last week of the Graham Taylor doc, which a lot of you seem to like, and I still have Sharpie, Sharpie in my head consistently. Uh, Mike, it is your go. Yeah, this is a the original documentary that I wanted was a, a, a documentary about the USFL in America, uh, and it was called The Final Season. That's really hard to get hold of now. So this is the same producer, I believe, who made a follow-up documentary not that long ago called Small Potatoes. His dream was to to be in the National Football, and they didn't want him. I still feel, and will always feel, that his ambitions, his personal ambitions. Or sunk the league. Well, I think that, you know, that the, the USFL three-year activity was similar to his apprenticeship show, you know? He went in it, and he orchestrated it. Then when he was done with him, he didn't win his, he didn't win his lawsuit and get the NFL. He just fired everybody, cleaned the house. I'm done. It's good. Y'all have a nice day. That's very well put. You're fired. People can try and blame Trump or whatever they want to do. I mean, that doesn't matter. That's the story of my life. You don't feel like you owe an apology or an explanation to Reynolds, Pitcock, Chet Simmons. No, I actually think I got the league to go as far as it went. I think without me, this league would have folded a lot sooner. 
all spinning aside, yeah, so essentially the United States Football League the NFL is is, is a is a is now and was then the, the biggest sports league in, in America and they tried a rival league every sort of 10 years these leagues would spring up so there was the All-America Football Conference in the 50s they ended up uh, absorbing a few of those teams into the league in the 60s there's the American Football League and that became virtually the AFC Conference in the NFL then in the early 70s was a thing called the World League and they signed some of the um, the big NFL stars to play in that but that went bust after a couple of years so when the 80s rolled around, um, this rival league launched called the United States Football League, the USFL, and they went all out to play a spring season. So after the Super Bowl until sort of um, until the late spring, early summer. And they got involved very early in, in signing big names. So if you know anything about college sports in America, the Heisman Trophy is the, is the, is the premier um, college football player they signed Heisman Trophy winners so they signed a man called Doug Flutie they signed a fantastic player called Herschel Walker um, they had big name players that played a spring league the idea being they had this long term strategy where they wanted to over the course of sort of five to ten years strengthen the league grow the TV markets grow the audiences and then look maybe in the future to approach the NFL for a merger uh, and there was one owner that bought into the league after the, in the second season and that was not the sort of timescale he was interested in. He went head to head. He wanted to go head to head with the NFL, change the season after the after the second season, and go to an autumn season. And with fairly disastrous consequences, he managed to sort of badger the rest of the owners into agreeing with him. Eventually, the one fellow that really wanted to keep it in the spring league was a man called John Bassett, who died of a brain tumor when he was, what, I think, 47, 48 years of age. And they said after that, this other owner, Steamroller, eventually the other owners had to come around his way of thinking. The owner of that team was Donald Trump. Um, and they reckon that he'd tried to get an NFL franchise before the USFL and had been sort of turned down by the owners. So he saw it very much as a personal affront to him. And he wanted to to beat, you know, to be the big league. He wanted to beat the NFL. And if he couldn't beat the NFL, he wanted to go head-to-head and then end up merging with the NFL with his team. What's interesting is watching Trump being interviewed, he actually is factually on it during this period. Mm. And you can kind of see almost the... <laughs> you watch his press conferences now and some would say that he might not be factually 100% on it all of the time. Oh, yeah. he, Don't he say that. All he, of his... He'll tweet to you, Steph. <laughs> yeah. he'll, be, he'll, he'll be lucky if he can find the handle. <laughs> <laughs> the year after the USFL folded, 15 of the USFL players played in the Pro Bowl. Right? There were Super Bowl winners. Steve Young played there. Doug Flutie played there. You know, Herschel Walker played there. It was a really strong league. But it was just that... The, the team... One of the teams that was the most successful they were called the Tampa Bay Bandits. And they were part of... John Bassett was the owner of them. The part owner with John Bassett was Burt Reynolds, right? Which is a person close to my heart, as we all know. Um, so that's why they're called the Bandits after Smokey the Bandit. And um, they, they'd have a horse that ran out. And when they score touchdowns and bits of off. Just brilliant. But, uh, but it, <laughs> this is not my book, but Burt Reynolds' uh, second autobiography is called But Enough About Me. Um, <laughs> it's a great name. Nice. It's a great name, isn't it? That's good. Yeah, but he, that's good. he talks about... I, I'm just going to read this little bit here about, about Donald Trump and the USFL. So he talks about John Bassett, who was the Tampa Bay uh, main owner. Uh, John and Donald were both rich kids, but that's where the similarity ended. Donald was born on third and thought he hit a triple. 
whereas John was the son of a Canadian media mogul, but it didn't turn him into a jerk. He worked hard to build his own fortune without help from his father. Unlike Donald, he'd been a jock himself and played college football and high-level tennis as a member of the Canadian Davis Cup team. And then it says, um, John wanted to keep improving the quality of play and grow the USFL into something that would someday rival the NFL. Uh, Donald didn't have John's vision or passion for the game. He admitted he came into the league and intended to move the games to the fall to compete directly with the NFL. I had the feeling that instead of trying to develop the brand, Donald was angling for a merger with the NFL so he could wind up with an NFL franchise for a song. This is this is great. This is so. Bear in mind, he wrote this. Uh, this book's probably ten years old now. So Burrell says, in my opinion, it was Donald's fault the USFL didn't survive. Now, don't get me wrong. I like Donald. I hold onto my wallet whenever we shake hands, but I like him. <laughs> I just think his personal ambition sank the USFL. He was interested in only two things: money and publicity. John summed it up when he said that Donald's ego transcended his business sense. In the years since, every time Donald runs for president. I pray he never gets a chance to do to the USA what he did to the USFL. Wow. Oh. <laughs> wow. So there we go. Wow. The thing I found amazing, again, to, to compare it to football, in Manchester you've got Man United and Man City, Liverpool you've got yeah. Everton and mm. Liverpool. Yeah. It's, the, the equivalent would be to, alongside Manchester United and Manchester City, to then have Manchester Albion or Greater yeah. Manchester, or Man- Manchester Wednesday. And so, some of the clubs were, 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 or some of the teams were really, really well supported, but I think there was the team in LA, they were only getting crowds of seven or 8,000. Yeah, 6,000. In a 95,000-seater you know, stadium. You know, in a city that's overpopulated with clubs because there were two big NFL teams there already. Yeah. So what sort of person was turning up at USFL games? Well, I think, I mean, football's huge, and I mean... I'll talk about this a little bit later on. Um, I mean, high school football's massive, college football's massive, but the whole system of sport in America, not just not just American football, is is pyramidal. Whereas you you know you might play on a Sunday league football game, I might go and play for Barry Veterans Rugby on a, on a on a Saturday afternoon. But in the states, at every level, so you go from junior high school to high school to college to the pros. It it's designed to get as many people as possible interested in the sport at a young age. But then on every level to refine that, refine that, refine that, till you've only got 30-odd teams playing professionally. And then outside of that, you've just got millions of people who are interested in it that can't play. What they, what they did a lot of was, was innovate. I mean, in the 80s, mm. they called the NFL the no-fun league. You know, you weren't allowed to celebrate touchdowns. Yeah. Um, they brought, yeah. you know, they were very rigid about changing the game in any way, whereas the USFL said, OK, let's get the fans involved. They brought in the first instant replay challenge. So, so can we, in a way, blame Donald Trump for VAR? Uh, is, that, is that what you're trying to tell me? Well, I think so. That's where it started. That's where the, the, the spider cam... I mean, there are bigger things to blame him for. What? I mean, yeah. Go on. Else, <laughs> else, wave it at me. What, what, what is yeah. that? They were, they, it's a red, like, hanky that they're well, this, on the this, this, <laughs> well, it's, it's just a red flag, but they... They could think about this with what they do. What they do in the USFL and the NFL, which I think football can learn a lesson from, because VAR was, a, I think, we can all agree, an absolute, absolute nightmare last season. Is the coach can the only person who can challenge that decision is the coach, and you only get three challenges uh, a game, right? So you throw a challenge flag on that decision could be challenged, but then the referee is the only person that can overturn that. So he'll he'll look at the monitor, then he'll decide. Whereas VAR seems to be. It goes to a van somewhere in London. Yeah, in Stockholm. No yeah, and I think there's a real problem with, and it's happening in rugby now as well. When you bring in that TMO, which is the same thing, it undermines the referee because the referees, 
we're, we're all brought up thinking the referee's the final arbiter on everything, right? And in the NFL, that is the case. In the USFL, that is the case, because they still make that decision. Whereas in rugby and football now, the referee's got someone above him that we don't even see, right? So the referee's not the boss. The referee can say it's offside. It goes to VAR. He doesn't call for it. Neither manager calls for it. Then VAR decides that that wasn't offside. In Stockley Park. Yeah, which then makes the referee almost like a deputy referee. But with with the USFL, if if you, now, mm. how is that seen by modern football fans? Is it is it seen as as a as as a as a failure where the standard of play was actually quite high, but the the, the product itself was the problem? I think it's seen as a, as a as a by real football fans as a missed opportunity. Really, um, the thing was as well that that and it's in the documentary. Trump ended up suing the NFL for for you know monopolizing football, and the judge agreed that the NFL monopolized football. But instead of like one point two billion dollars, he awarded him one dollar, <laughs> which according to American law, it's a monopoly lawsuit. They have to triple that award, so they actually gave the USFL three dollars. Yeah, and then with interest, it was three dollars sixty seven cents. <laughs> and they give in that doc when he gives when he shows Donald Trump the check. Donald Trump's face is a picture, isn't it? <laughs> I just love that. Bert, be- Bert Reynolds obviously knows him well. That was just uh, an interesting insight on him. I think. So this documentary, it's not on YouTube, this one. It's on uh, ESPNplayer.com. But if you log on to that, you get seven days free. You've just got to remember to, if you don't want to carry it on, but it'll probably cost you the amount of you would have been paying out in lattes where you're not locked in the house anyway, but it'll cost you that much a month. This is the way I'm working it out in my head. Uh, it's called Small Potatoes, Who Killed the USFL? Right, round two of clips. Ellis, you get to go first again on this one. Uh, what's your clip this time around? This is a clip from what I think is one of the great... Boxing fairy tales. Um, I just cannot think really of of a story quite like it. So this is Steve Robinson from Cardiff, becoming world champion by beating England's John Davison. Welcome back to the northeast, where the boxers, as you can see, are now in the ring waiting for, to contest this vacant WBO featherweight championship of the world. The Geordie, John Davison, the British champion from Newcastle, and the Welshman, Steve Robinson from Cardiff, on our way now, to join our. If you're not a boxing fan, and if you're not a maybe you know for any non-Welsh listeners who, who might not remember this, Steve Robinson was working in Debenhams. He was earning fifty-two pound a week. He was from Ely in Cardiff. And he was on he was on the lowest rungs really of of professional boxing. So he would have he was a journeyman. He he would have been earning a couple of hundred quid a fight, I imagine. So uh, John Davison, who was a good boxer uh, from the northeast, he was fighting Ruben Palacios uh, for uh, the WBO featherweight uh, uh, title. And um, a few days before the fight was meant to take place on the Saturday night. Um, Palacios uh, was diagnosed as HIV positive. He was unable to to fight. So obviously now, and this is this is something that I'm sure that um, uh, Mike will be able to empathise with. The promoters need to find someone. So it's a bit like when a stand-up comic is ill, 
<laughs> and the promoter then has to call all of the comics in the area because the, the comic who's on the bill is, you know, his or her car's broken down. So they just did a ring around. So they did a ring around, and Steve was pretty low down on the list, apparently. So they get, they get to Steve, and they say, listen, it's Washington, it's Saturday night, are you free? And he says, I'm free, because, <laughs> I'm free. He, because he worked in, <laughs> in Debenhams. They said, great, what sort of shape are you in? He's like, well, I'm, I'm pretty naturally fit. Can you make the weight? Now, this is my favourite This is my favorite uh, aspect is, of the whole story. How long before is this? This is a couple of days before, right? Now, the reason he's he's he's, he's in pretty good nick, right? But he, the reason he's tentative about saying yes is that he'd had pie and chips at his girlfriend's mother's <laughs> house the night before <laughs> in Ely. He's thinking, shit, I, I, I might not make the weight, right? So he goes up for the weigh-in and he makes the weight. So now he's fighting in a world title fight. Superb. Whatever it is you're listening to this, you can guess what happened. He wins. It's a points decision. He is now world champion. Now, even if you ended the anecdote there, it's still a great anecdote. It's still an amazing sporting fairy tale. What I love about it so much, he goes on to defend his title a further seven times. So now, he's he's, he's on the telly all the time. He had some really, really great nights um, at the ice rink in Cardiff. That's where he did a lot of his boxing. And also, he wasn't fighting chumps, right? No, he he fought... um, uh, Colin McMillan, who was a very good boxer, Sweet Sea, Colin mm. McMillan. He also fought Duke McKenzie. Now, Duke mm. McKenzie um, is a fantastic fighter. Yeah. He is the only British boxer in the 20th century to have won a world title at, at three different weights. So Duke McKenzie regards himself as the greatest British boxer of all time because Bob Fitzsimmons did it in the <laughs> 19th century. So Duke McKenzie was only 31 as well. I mean, it's sort, sort of at the end of his career, but still a relatively young man. And Steve beats him in Cardiff. Now, if you listen to the first episode of this podcast last week, um, there's, I, I assume it's going to run and run. There's a running joke on this show that all Welsh people know each other and there's no way that we can't find a link to a Welsh sports person who was, who was talked about on this, on this podcast. Incredibly, I actually know Duke McKenzie because he lives around the corner <laughs> from me. And I, um, I did a little bit of training at his gym and... Uh, after after a few sessions, he realised that um, that I was a big boxing fan, and uh, we were doing some pad work. And he said, and I I'd hit, I'd, I'd hit him with quite a good shot if I do say so myself, right? And he said, "Do you know Steve Robinson?" I said, "I'm a huge fan of Steve Robinson." He said, "Next time you're in Cardiff, give him one of those, because I because <laughs> Steve Robinson beat me." So, uh, so give him one of those for me and tell him tell him Duke sent you. I got I got to fire this very quick anecdote in. Uh, Dr. Jack Matthews, I mentioned last week, who was p- played for Wales, Captain Wales, ended up being the Welsh team doctor for years and years and years. Boxed a bit when he was in the RAF, I believe, in the war. And the butchers, the butchers pub in Landaf, which which I think Steph might know and you might know. Oh, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, yep. I'm not sure if the photograph is still there, but there's Jack Matthews with this bare-chested with a big grin on his face, and that was when he. So bear in mind, the man played rugby for Wales. And he was the Welsh team doctor, and he sprinted for Wales. He boxed in the RAF and boxed against Rocky Marciano and drew and drew drew with Rocky Marciano. Wow! Because the Americans sort of put Rocky Marciano up for the fight against uh, Jack Matthews and Jack Matthews fought him to a draw. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, not bad. All I have in my head now is the uh, the barbershop scene from Coming to America. <laughs> that's, that's... Rocky Marciano, Rocky Marciano. Oh shit! <laughs> that's all I've got in my mind. I've never seen that. What? what I don't know what. <laughs> 
Fuck you, fuck you, and fuck you. Who's next? So that one will be up on our Twitter feed as soon as possible after we publish this episode. Uh, my second clip for this week is one of those weird games, if you like. You kind of look back through history and you go, how on earth did that happen? This is a rugby game, uh, Scotland and Ireland against England and Wales. Holmes. Oh, that was cheeky. So was that. Still in play. Redburn and one for Carlton to chase. Irvin's back there too, but Carlton has it. Not quite the fairy tale ending, but support comes still from the pack. Hopes are still alive. Holmes through. Davis in. Davis is there. Gareth Davis makes the drive. But may well win this match for Wales. So this happened in 1980, this particular episode, if you like. There have been... I think four or five previous ones during the 70s. Every time basically a union had a centenary, they got this game on. And I can't imagine it happening in these days. And I can't imagine anyone entering a game like this with as much abandon and skill as these two teams do. The try Andy Irvin scores for Scotland and Ireland is just a thing of absolute beauty. And then you get right the way to the end of it and Gareth Davis scores a try where Terry Holmes just shows it's probably one of the best bits of rugby I've seen Terry Holmes play and I'd never really heard of this game until until fairly recently it's absolutely fascinating well that, what I like about this podcast Steph is I, I love rugby I I must have seen this game at the time as a, as a small kid I've never seen it since and when you sent me the clip a few days ago I watched that clip <laughs> I couldn't believe how many brilliant tries are in one game of rugby and how many brilliant players Oh, mate, it's just yeah. fantastic to watch. I mean, because you, you never see, you know, you, you don't see British Lions. Basically, it's a, it's a British Lions final trial, you know. Yeah. It yeah. was the standard of it. But but the way they play that sort of barbarian style of rugby, where they're flinging the ball around, and it's, there's some great handling skills, some great offload, and some great support. But they combine that with being the the very best players in Britain. Playing like it means something, not like it's just a meaningless exhibition game. It was a fab. It's a mate. It was a fabulous tip that were to watch that. The the thing I remember from the six month period when I was obsessed with rugby in nineteen eighty eight. Yes, what a half year that was. Obviously, it's before the game went open, so when it was still an amateur game. <laughs> so Wales would play England, for instance, in the Five Nations as it was then at the old National Stadium, there'd be 55,000 people, 52,500 people there. None of the players were getting paid. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> that is, they all had jobs. Now, if yeah. if you're probably under the age of 30, or if you're not a rugby fan, and there'll be, you know, we've as we discovered this week, we've got listeners to in America, and we've got listeners in Australia, who, you know, might have other sports as their chief sport. It is, it never fails to blow my mind that those players were teachers or quantity surveyors, or they fitted kitchens or whatever, yeah. and yet. Five times a year, they would play. It would be, you know, televised an, an enormous event. And the Arms Park and Twickenham and Murrayfield are full. Everyone's paying for a ticket. They're not seeing a penny of it. So what my memory of rugby from this period, there seemed to be a lot of these slightly strange exhibition games, really. 
You know, I think the Barbars, the Barbarians, probably the best example. Yeah, but but that I'd never heard of that Wales, England, and Scotland, Ireland game. So I can't let this pass without mentioning the Twitter exchange you guys were having mm. midweek. Gareth Davis, who scored that try, um, I decided to kind of tap out and just sit on the sidelines and observe this because it seemed like much more entertaining just from the sidelines. Um, you mentioned him last week on the pod. Ellis and Jonathan Davis listened to the pod who we mentioned last week yeah. and he kind of tapped Gareth Davis into the conversation and Gareth Davis was rating your dad in one conversation that you guys were having. Well, my dad, I mentioned this last week, uh, went to Gwendraith Grammar School um, in the Gwendraith Valley. Um, so dad played in the same first 15 as Gareth. Gareth was in fifth form and um, I don't think my dad would mind me saying this uh, on air, dad failed his A levels. He had to go back to sit them, which meant that he got to play in the first. Uh, which meant he got to play in the first fifteen. Anyway, um, this they had one season together in nineteen seventy two, seventy three, I think. And um, Gareth, in that Welsh way, said, oh, "Who's your father?" And I said, "Aylesford James." And he went, "Oh, I remember him. Yeah, Hooker, not the biggest, only about five foot six, lemon stone, but a very, very committed player, tenacious in the tackle." And he just. <laughs> Reviewed my dad's really playing from forty years ago, um, almost well, fifty years ago, and yeah, uh, yeah I, I called him up and read out the tweet, and he was absolutely delighted. A chuff, wasn't he? Oh yeah. See that that's a beautiful thing. And then sideline to this, so there are three conversations going on that I'm trying to follow. Mm. All of them on that awful Twitter tag we used to have, right? So I'm, I'm trying to follow this. So you got that one going on with you. There's another one going on about how everyone in Wales is one step away from each other, which appears to be moderated by Scott Quinnell, as far as I can tell. He's fact-checking for us, which in itself is quite strange. And then on another one, Mark Ring, who used to play for Wales, is telling Jonathan Davis, who used to play for Wales, how good Mike was as a rugby player. That was, like, honestly, one of the best days of my life. (laughs) Because Jonathan Davis, as I mentioned last week, is is my Pele, right? But, uh, yeah. then, but then Mark Ring was just like was like my George Best. He was just this, you know. He liked to drink. He, he liked to gamble. He was a fantastic talent on a rugby pitch. He would do outrageous things like knee the ball over people's heads and catch it. Catch, yeah. Just do yeah. it. Could do anything. I, I remember watching him on um, rugby special back in the day when I was at university, and he, and he uh, it was like a, he, he did like a little tour of his flat. I remember he had this fridge just full of beer, and then he went to the rugby pitch, and I, I seem to remember he was he was kicking. Conversions or drop goals from the corner flag, yes, over, with the outside of his boot. Yeah, both ways. Yeah, in swingers and out swingers. So, so for Mark Ring to tell Jonathan Davis that I was a good rugby player was it was up there with getting married, the birth of my kids. I mean, it was. <laughs> you got a framed tweet in the hallway. Oh, yeah. Right, Mike. What's your clip for this round? My clip for this round, Steph, is. I think possibly Britain's greatest ever all-round sportsman, Mr. Daly Thompson. It's a better one, it's a better one, it's a better one, it's a better one! Oh, the man comes good and he's dancing in the circle. I can't think of somebody I've got more respect for as a sportsman than Daly Thompson. And, and when you watch that, I haven't seen that for a long, long time. Obviously, decathlon, by its nature, you have to be an all-rounder. But I can't believe how talented they are. I can't believe someone could be that fast and then do a pole vault, and then do a shot put, mm. and then do a 1,500 metres, and then do a... And he just seemed to be that sort of lovely sportsman that had, or sportswoman, that had that ability 
to really pull the stops out when it really mattered. You know, if he had to have a personal best in the 1500 metres in the last event, he'd run a personal best. That's just what he would do. You know, he he would find a way to win. And obviously, famously, then he, you know, he got in a bit of trouble with some of the tabloids for whistling the anthem and that lack of respect, which I thought was also equally brilliant, you know. And, and, and a man who apparently refuses, I, I, I did a bit of work a year or two ago with Chris Akabusi, who is a force of nature. <laughs> <laughs> if you think it's an act with Chris Akabusi, I can assure you he tones it down for the TV, right? <laughs> but he just said that Daily Thomas refuses to wear a shirt and tie to anything. It doesn't matter if it's a funeral yes. or a wedding. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. He just wears a tracksuit and a T-shirt. That's what he wants to wear. That's what he's wearing. There are certain sports people that I think have a certain hold over the general public globally. I think the winner of the 100 metres um, at the Olympics is winner Usain Bolt in particular, um, and also the world boxing heavyweight champion. They tend to be the kind of people that even non-sports fans recognise. Yeah, yeah. It should be the decathletes, because Daley Thompson was brilliant at all of the sports. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, my, it's not like he could do a bit of everything. He was running like 10-4 or 10-3 in the 100. Yeah. So yeah. my experience at school was the kids who were good at sport tended to be good at all sports. So, you know, the, the, the best rugby players were often the best footballers, were often the best cricketers. You know, the girls I was school, at school with, the captain of the hockey team was also the captain of the netball team. Imagine that, but at a level that is world-class mm. across, across the board. So, you know, discus... You know, the, the and really jump, te- high jump. They're really technical events. You know, it's not just like you can run fast and you can lift and you can lift a lot of weight, right? If you look at someone doing a pole vault, that is that takes hundreds and thousands of hours of practice. Yes. As does yes. the hurdles, as does throwing a discus, right? They, they're super intricate things that the athletes who just do pole vault spend sixty hours a week practicing. So how do you yeah. find time to do all those things to that level? So he is training 10% as hard as Carl Lewis or 10% as hard as Steve Backley hmm. or 10% as hard as Colin Jackson hmm. because he's got 10, 10 of it. That is too many. But and even if you look at what, what sport is, right, uh, or sport performance, they're, <clears> they're not even the same... You're not even using the same energy reserves. You, you're using explosive strength, then you're using anaerobic fitness then he's using aerobic fitness then it it's just it blows your mind to see people do that he also is responsible for one of my favorite sporting photos of all time oh i know uh, what you're gonna say yeah last man standing oh what a photo. so yeah it's him after completing the 1500 meters um during the european athletics championships at the olympic stadium in athens in august 82 everyone else is ruined, Collapsed. knackered, yeah. and he's just stood there with his hands on his hips. Superb, and I, 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 th- I think that is my f- favourite photo, alongside that famous photo of Maradona and the entire Belgian team is trying to tackle him. He, um, his career ended more abruptly than you think because he was thirty in eighty-eight. So you'd think that the sole eighty-eight Olympics would have been his one. Became fourth in that one. Hmm. I think he won Olympic gold when he was. Sort of twenty one. Didn't he win? He, was, he won an eighty and eighty four. Yeah. Eighty and eighty four. Yeah. In seventy six, I think it was Bruce Jenner who won the gold that time round, and he took him back to 
wherever he lived in California after that for three weeks and trained with him because he saw the talent. I think he came about 15th or something like that in 76. Oh, right. he, he just sat down with him and just talked to him for three weeks and oh. said, you're the next one. Superb. Right, we hit the books round. Uh, who wants to go first on books? Alice, what have you got for us? Yes, my book is The Football Man, People and Passions in Soccer um, by Arthur Hopcraft. The edition I have um, has an introduction by Michael Parkinson. The Observer said it was still the best uh, book on football. It's from 1968, so it's obviously it's a very different uh, period. England are still world champions. It's also just before uh, football hooliganism, although he does predict that because I think he describes hooligans as gangs of roughs. But it's, it's, it's before the, the social problems that were associated with football. Um, and it's obviously a period piece, and it's dated, but he's a great writer. And it's a collection of interviews, so he's fascinated by George Best. So obviously, 1968, it's around the time of Best, you know, winning the European champion, winning the European Cup of the United and being regarded as the, the fifth Beatle and all that kind of stuff. So... He has in, um, interviews with uh, people like Sir Matt Busby. That chapter is called Sir Matt Busby and Virtuosity. He has an interview with Sir Alf Ramsey, Sir Alf Ramsey and Strategy. Uh, Stan Mortensen, who played for England in the 50s. Stan Mortensen and Civic Pride. So that says a lot about the kind of, <laughs> a kind of book it is. It is a great read and it is, it's descriptive of a time that is gone. You know, so he talks about the kind of... Uh, the jobs that football fans have and they do things like, you know, they're typewriter salesmen and stuff. And I read one review of the book and it um, it said that it's almost like he's trying to explain working class people to a middle class audience because football was still such a working class game. Yeah. So I've just got one uh, quote for you. Um, he's describing um, football grounds. So uh, the terraces with steps as greasy as a school playground lavatory in the rain. The air is rancid with beer and onions and belching and worse. The language is a gross purple of obscenity. When the crowd surges at a shot or a collision near a corner flag, a man or a boy and sometimes a girl can be lifted off the ground in the crush as if by some massive soft-sided crane grab and dangled about for minutes on end. So if you're at all you know, put off by the commercialism and the money involved in the modern game. It is an incredible reminder of how football used to be. Because, um, yeah, you know, the book's over 50 years old now, but it's still it's still a fascinating read. Babs, what have you got? Well, I'll keep it brief, Steph, because I've obviously touched on American football and we're, and, uh, we're, a, we're a British podcast, Steph. But uh, I've picked a book which is fascinating uh, called Friday Night Lights oh. by H.G. Bissinger. Now, there was a TV series that came off the back of this that really bears no resemblance to the book whatsoever. Um, so it's a story about uh, a journalist who goes and, and lives uh, in, a, in a little place in small town Texas, a little place called Odessa in Texas, and he basically follows the high school football team for a, for a season, for a year, um, the Permian Panthers. Just a real, real eye-opener about uh, American sport in general and American football in particular. Just, I mean, like high school football in in Texas, you you may get thirty thousand people watching seventeen year olds play football on a Friday night, you know. Uh, and 
you got these kids who at that young age, 16, 17, bear in mind they can't drink till they're 21, they can't drive until they're, they're older than that in some states as well, you know. You got kids who are essentially above the law. I mean, it's just a, it's just a weird thing. You're in these, you're in these small Texan towns, and, the, and the, it's not just Texas; it's all this, uh, it's a lot of the states, where I think in I think in the average American high school, the football coach is by far the highest paid member of staff. It gets paid a lot more than the the principal or the head teacher, you know. And it's just this absolute religion and. To see what we would just, we would talk about watching like a, an under seventeens you know game of rugby or football, uh, a high school football game in in America and certainly in parts of the South is mind blowing and and it's a real it's a real warts and all uh, fascinating read if if you want to understand a little bit about the American psyche when it comes to sport it's it's a really 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 good book. All right, I've gone for a book called Barbarian Days, uh, A Surfing Life by a guy called William Finnegan. Um, it won a Pulitzer Prize for Best Biography in 2016. It's sort of, it's as much about this guy and his life growing up in California and Hawaii, and then he moves to Australia and apartheid South Africa. So he grows up in the 60s in Hawaii, then moves to South Africa, and it's, it's as much about how surfing is kind of the backdrop to his life and the basis. You know, it, I've always been fascinated by surfing and I've never been even able to sit on a board, let alone be able to ride a wave. I can't even balance. I must have watched, I mean, we I were, watched Big Wednesday every day one summer yes. holiday when I was about 16. Yeah. Absolutely love Big Wednesday. It's impossible. I don't understand anyone who can actually physically do it. My wife got, my wife got me surfing lessons in Flangenith for my 40th birthday, which is a while back now. And I just never took her up on it. She'd already paid for it. <laughs> I just thought, well, it's pointless, it's pointless me even trying that. You know? it, it's, it's not doable for someone like me. But the, the writing in this is beautiful. There's a little uh, quote from it. Surfing always had this horizon, this fear line that made it different from other things, certainly other sports I knew. You could do it with friends, but when the waves got big or you got into trouble, there never seemed to be anyone around. Waves were the playing field, they were the goal, they were the object of your deepest desire and adoration. At the same time, they were your adversary, your nemesis, even your mortal enemy. The ocean was like an uncaring god, endlessly dangerous, powerful beyond measure. It's just, it, it's oh, come on. That sort of, I love that. That sort of language that. within it. Really got to say this. I've actually chosen two books this week. The other one I've chosen is Robbie Savage's autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> right, keep your guesses coming in for who the secret guitarist is. Uh, if you can leave us a review on the podcast app that you use, then give us a five-star review. Have a guess on there. When the school's open again... Then we will reveal the secret guitarist's identity. Right. Okay. So far, guesses include uh, a guy called Dave Dominguez says Noel Gallagher. A lot of people, including uh, DRP297, catchy, like your Twitter. <laughs> right. mate. I'm getting on board with that, that one. one. Uh, write, write that down, Steph. Hang on, hang on. Bones71114. That's more up my street. If there was a capital letter in there, mate, I'd be stealing that off you. Uh, Mikey Boy Blake. Phil Dav Bristol and Microphone Maine all say James Dean Bradfield. Original Berg says Kelly Jones. Pop Kids 68 says Jimi Hendrix after a successfully negotiated unexpected seance like mm. that. 
Uh, Skitrek says Nicky Wire. Toby from Norwich says, based on the fact there are only 12 people from Wales, it's Griff Rees. And the running Mal says Peredir Ap Gwynedd. Oh, I know. I know Peredir. Fame. There we go. He's an oh, obsessive that's, that's... cyclist, Peredir. He's... He does the commentary on the Tour de France on S4C, right? Yeah, or is that he's, his brother? he's in the band Pendulum. And he is. They will do the Roskilde Festival in Denmark, and then the next night the gig will be in, you know, Sweden, and he'll cycle it. And he will. That's they'll cool. do gigs in the south of France, and then you know, a few days later they've got gigs in Spain. And he'll cycle it, and he'll get there more quickly than the rest of the band are on the tour bus. He's, that leads yeah. me to think it might be him. Well, okay. Who uh, knows? Uh, hey, if you know him, it could be. Uh, it's playing underneath us now. If you have a guess of who it is, drop us a little line. Uh, we will be back uh, next week, I presume. They're all good and well, and we are all still locked in. We will be back with another one of these as soon as possible. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Al. Cheers, Steph. Cheers, Al. Good to see you, boys. Bye.